Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a physicist working to develop autonomous intelligent systems for potential use in space and in medical devices. The AI approach really requires human intervention. It requires humans to provide the data. The data needs to be curated and it also needs the humans to be pre-programmed. Whereas a hardware approach, we're really leaving the device on its own to interact with its immediate environments and try and learn adaptively on the fly. That was Stenka Kuncic, a professor of physics at Sydney University, who came into the FT to speak to our science editor, Clive Cookson, about the difference between software-based and hardware-based approaches to AI. There's been an awful lot of publicity in the FT and elsewhere about artificial intelligence. How does synthetic intelligence differ from AI as we know it? Yeah, so synthetic intelligence differs from AI, which is a software-based intelligence, in that instead of using software and pre-programming and data, what we're trying to do is actually to use hardware and in fact trying to build a synthetic brain that thinks and learns in a similar way that our own human brains do. That is an extremely ambitious aim. How are you doing it? Are you building it out of biological materials or out of inorganic materials? We're building it out of inorganic materials simply because it's much easier to control those kind of systems than using biological materials. And we're using some cutting-edge nanotechnology, specifically systems that are made out of nanowires. And the reason why we're doing that is because these nanowire technologies actually form and, and assemble themselves into a complex network structure that actually looks remarkably similar to the neural network in the human brain. Can you explain how those nanowires form these neural-like networks, which, as you say, they look astonishing, like the network of neurons and synapses in a real brain. Yes. So these nanowires are condensed out of a particular chosen material. In our case, one of the systems that we've developed is made out of primarily silver and also some polymer as well. So the techniques that are used experimentally is a technique called self-assembly, which is a common technique used in nanotechnology. And the interesting thing about how these nanowires evolve and self-assemble is that because they're able to do this randomly on their own, we don't really need to control their formation in that sense. And so what we find is that the nanowires condense out of the materials that we provide, they self-assemble, and then the locations where the nanowires actually overlap with each other naturally form junctions. And because these nanowires are also electrically conducting, when we stimulate the resulting network with an electrical stimulus, what we find is that the response of the network of the nanowires is very, very similar to the electrical responses that we see, for example, from EEG signals from the human brain. Wow. Now, the human brain famously has something like 100 billion neurons and a 1,000 trillion synapses. 
are you going to be able to do anything on that sort of scale? <laughs> well, we're not there yet. <laughs> but what's interesting also with our approach is that we're also developing computational simulations of the experimental prototype itself. And the reason why we're doing that is because our experimental approach and experimental approaches in general when you're making devices like these are quite limited and they're quite labour intensive. So a really good way to be able to analyse the system and get a better understanding of it is to simulate it. And that's one of the things I'm doing. So in the computational simulations, we can actually scale up in principle to any size that we're interested in testing. Okay, well, the hardware is interesting, but of course, even more interesting is what you're going to be doing with this synthetic Mm. intelligence. Tell us first what you're doing in these early stages, and then we can move on to how it might be used in the real world. Yeah, so what we're doing at the moment in terms of testing the device to assess what kind of capabilities and functionalities it's capable of is we're developing some very basic what we call associative learning tests. So what this entails is to stimulate the network, the prototype network, with a range of different electrical signals. And these signals can consist of signals with different temporal patterns, different repetition rates, different shapes, if you like. So one particular type of electrical stimulation that we're interested in are what's known as a spiking signal, which is what we know the brain is stimulated with. So we're just testing it out with a whole range of different electrical stimuli and observing the different range of responses that the network exhibits to try and then train the network into learning particular types of patterns of electrical stimuli. And so the objective there is really to train the system into being able to perform pattern recognition in a similar way to the brain, but it's quite different from the AI approaches. Have you actually got it to do any pattern recognition yet? Yeah, we've managed to get the system to do some very basic pattern recognition. And obviously, we've got a long way to go to be able to demonstrate more complex pattern recognition. And we're also interested in devising some more complex learning tests. What sort of applications do you see for this in the longer term, once you've really got it working Mm. to reliably learn to recognise patterns and maybe move beyond that? Yeah, so in terms of the applications, there are two particular applications that I'm interested in. One of them is to put these devices into autonomous systems. So autonomous systems at the moment operate like robots, well, they are essentially robots, but they're computer programs, so they're still very much software-based. If we could put this synthetic brain into an autonomous system, then it would require very minimal or ideally no pre-programming at all, and it would be able to learn adaptively in a particular environment that it's being applied to. So one particular example is autonomous systems in space for different types of space technologies, and these sorts of adaptively learning autonomous systems are going to be needed when we eventually colonise the moon and Mars as well. And before you move on to your second Mm. type of application, what might they do? Let's say we put something onto a Mars rover. It'll obviously need to make decisions more quickly than people on Earth will be able to tell it to make. 
because of the lag in radio waves. What sort of thing do you think it might do up in space on yeah, another planet? Look, that's exactly right. And this is one of the reasons why we need these kind of systems because we need to have systems that can make decisions on the fly in a reliable way. And we might envisage actually constructing a few different types of these systems. So one system, for example, might have a specific task around mining. Another system might have a specific task around building habitable environments for the eventual arrival of humans on Mars. Okay, and what's the second type of application? The second type of application is a medical device application. So because these systems can exhibit memorization in addition to learning, memory is required for learning, we're really interested in the possibility of developing a brain interface device that can help people with dementia and also potentially people with learning impairments as well. How would that work? The way in which we think it might work is to, again, be able to control the device's capability in regulating both short-term memory and long-term memory. So we've already established that the device can produce those two different types of memories, which the human brain also produces. And really, depending on what the particular memory impairment might be, we're looking to then being able to control that kind of memory capability of the device and help people with those kind of problems. How would you actually link it to the human brain? Would it be an implant or would it be a separate brain-computer interface? Yeah, so we'd like to be able to avoid a direct implant if possible because that's relatively invasive. So we're hoping that as other technologies evolve in terms of brain and hardware interfaces that we might be able to look to some other type of interface instead. We don't know yet what that will be. No, that works obviously some years ahead. Exactly, yeah. Who is working on synthetic intelligence? Obviously, your university group in Sydney is. What other universities, and more importantly, perhaps, which companies? Where is the industry on this? Yeah, so one of the underlying nanotechnologies that we're working on has actually already commercialised the nanotechnology for their particular application. So that's an electronics application, NEC, based in Japan. The work that we're doing around the synthetic intelligence applications of this nanotechnology Technology is being done in collaboration with the International Centre for Nanoarchitectonics, which is in Japan, and also the University of California at Los Angeles and the California Nanosystems Institute there as well. So it's a very multidisciplinary and multinational research collaboration. And who's funding it? We have various sources of funding that's sort of gone in different waves, if you like. So the Japanese government has funded it for many years, particularly the underlying nanotechnology that's now being commercialised, and also the US National Science Foundation as well. And we've put in a funding grant for the Australian government, the Australian Research Council. If this turns out, as you obviously think it will, to have great commercial value, where does the intellectual property lie? Yeah, so initially with the researchers, that's usually the case that the IP will be shared. And yeah, we'll see what happens as things evolve as well. Have you got a spin-out company yet? <laughs> not yet, not, not yet. But certainly that's something that, you know, we're, we're keeping our eye on in that space. Now, looking further ahead, where could this go? 
the question around, you know, whether these devices could actually start to exhibit emotional intelligence um, was a really important question because we as humans make most, if not all, of our decisions emotionally, not rationally. So it would be interesting to see if and how a man-made device might actually start to evolve that particular attribute. There's certainly nothing in the hardware that we've seen or developed or designed to try and emulate that. So we don't know what will come out of it. There are also some questions around consciousness and whether we might be able to gain new insights into consciousness from these sorts of devices. And we're thinking about consciousness as a different state of mind. Certainly the human mind has these different states of minds where we do a lot of things subconsciously. Most of the time we're awake, but we also sleep. And then, of course, sometimes some of us enter an an unconscious state. So if we could understand these different states that the human mind exhibits through a device that we're able to really test and assess in different ways, ways in which we can't test the human brain, then maybe we might be able to gain some new insights into consciousness, for example. But presumably the same could be true of what I might call more conventional AI-based on old-fashioned silicon-based computer technology because software-based AI is doing amazing things there, isn't it? Even approaching general intelligence. Yes, that's absolutely right. Some of the more recent developments in AI have been really impressive. And of course, there are a lot of efforts now in moving towards artificial general intelligence. But I guess the key difference between the software-based AI approaches and the synthetic intelligence approach, which is a hardware-based approach, is that the AI approach really requires human intervention. It requires humans to provide the data, and the data needs to be curated, and it also needs the humans to be pre-programmed. Whereas a hardware approach, we're really leaving the device on its own to interact with its immediate environments and try and learn adaptively on the fly. So if we're thinking about whether an intelligence device, whether it's a you know artificial intelligence or synthetic intelligence, might be able to exhibit emotional intelligence, I would think that it's more likely the case to be through this type of hardware-based approach. And another approach is biological, because you could grow something like a human brain with biological molecules. I mean, just growing neurons and synapses in a dish, but using the same proteins and DNA as in a real brain. Is that an alternative? Indeed, yes. You know, ideally, if you wanted to replicate and build your own brain, then, you know, biologically, that's what you would have to do. But of course, biology is very, very complicated and messy. So we need to start with the simplest approach possible. It's very difficult to control biology. So we're starting with something that we can control. And then Yet another area that people are excited about for the future is quantum computing. Does that have any bearing on your work in synthetic intelligence? Mm, Not directly, but indirectly what's interesting is that the nanotechnology that we're using for our synthetic intelligence device was originally designed as an alternative to quantum computing to avoid some of the limitations of current computing challenges. We all know that the chip sizes that have been reduced down to such small scales now that they can no longer be reduced any further 
are now experiencing significant challenges in terms of the heat dissipation that they're experiencing. And at the same time, we also know that at those very small scales, you do need to take into account quantum physics. But That whole area of development has really been driven by semiconductor device-based technologies. So a parallel and completely different path is one where you're not using semiconductor-based device nanotechnology, which is the path that we're going down. One of the biggest problems of the conventional approach, which you just alluded to in heat dissipation, is it's incredibly energy-consuming How much energy are your synthetic intelligent devices going to need? Yeah, so that's a good question. So the human brain consumes maybe of the order of about 25 milliwatts of power and our devices consume a comparable amount. And that's quite an achievement because standard conventional semiconductor electronic device components are many orders of magnitude more energy hungry than these new technologies. That alone could be a winner for synthetic intelligence. Indeed, yes. Well, thank you very much. It sounds like a really, really promising field of research. And we look forward to having you back in a few years to hear how you've got it to work. Thanks very much, Clive. We've been asking our listeners to take part in an informal survey and give their views on overrated and underrated technologies, which non-tech book gives the best insight into the impact of technology on our world and what's the biggest threat to the tech industry today. If you'd like to take part, please give us your answers to these questions and send us an email to tectonic at ft.com. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber, and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.